Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Let me read that again. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, reading this passage, you know, this verse that we read every Christmas, whether it's a candle lighting or on a card or an Instagram post or in a Christmassy sermon, there's a word that I don't think I've really paid attention to before. And that's embarrassing because I went to Bible college. Uh, I've been a believer a long time, and uh, I've been in church even longer. Um, anyone want to venture a guess as to which word it is? Anybody? Therefore. Way to go. First gathering got that too. Therefore. All the good Bible students know that whenever you see a therefore, you're supposed to find out what it's there for, right? It's clever. That's going to stick with you for the rest of your life. Our passage today starts with the word therefore. It doesn't start just the Lord will give you a sign. It's therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. That means that there is a reason for this the sign that he is going to give. There's a reason that God has to give it. And there's a someone for him to give it to. But what is that reason? What is or who is that someone? We don't often ask that question at Christmas because we're focusing on baby Jesus in a manger and Mary and Joseph and the donkeys and the sheep and we're concerned about the subject of the prophecy and not necessarily its context. But having spent this week in this passage, I think the context gives even more meaning to this sign and helps us better understand our need for Jesus. So for those of you who may not know or those of you who may need a refresher, I'm going to give you a quick history lecture here, okay? So try your best to keep up. We're going to go pretty fast. Israel, it's God's chosen people. They were at one point a single nation made up of 12 tribes consisting of the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob, also known as Israel. They lived under the rule of God and relied on the voice of prophets to hear from him. Now, the people of Israel, fearing the surrounding nations and wanting to fit in with those nations, wanted an earthly king. They didn't want God as their king. And though it broke his heart to do so, God gave them Saul. And then David, the shepherd, right, from David and Goliath. David became the king of Israel. And then his son, Solomon, became king of Israel after him. And after Solomon died some 200 years before our message or our passage today, Israel had a bit of a civil war and split into two nations. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they went in the south under the name Judah with Jerusalem as their capital. And the other 10 tribes joined together in the north under the name Israel with Ephraim or Samaria as their capital. And this divided kingdom did not get along, much to the interest of the surrounding nations. So when we get to our passage, Ahaz, this is all this, so many names, you're going to get so many more. Ahaz was the king of Judah, the smaller of the two nations. Pekah was the king of Israel. He's not a good guy. He's a murderer. And then up in the northeast corner of Israel or beyond Israel is Syria, another smallish nation. Their king is Rezin. It's a good name. And then there's Assyria, not to be confused with Syria. I know. His, their king is Tiglath-Pileser. Um, are you writing this down? 
If, any, if I'm going too fast, you just let me know. Assyria is a growing threat in the region, and the smaller nations are forming alliances with one another to fend off the advances of this massive empire. And Isaiah, whose book we're in right now, is the prophet that God has sent to be his spokesman to his people. And this is the context in which we find God giving a promise of a sign. So that's the backstory. It's this time of conflict and uncertainty that these words are written. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Isaiah chapter 7. To give us the context in which this sign was given, even more context, uh, we're going to read the first 18 verses of this chapter and hopefully get a better understanding as to why this sign was promised and what it means for us today. And actually, before we read, let me pray. Father, would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear from you this morning? that your word would do a work in us, that we would hear it, that we would believe it, put our trust in it, and do what it says. Amen. Okay, Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, again, so many names, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So a quick aside here. Syria and Israel, Israel is called Ephraim in this passage here. They had joined forces to protect themselves against Assyria and to have more influence in the region. And we're told here that they've come down from the north to besiege Judah, or the house of David as it's called in that part of the passage there. We're also told that to this point, they've been so far unsuccessful, but the fear that they incited was great. Moving on to verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. But thus says the Lord, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you, Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now we're going to stop here for a few minutes. I know we've only read the first half of the passage, but there are some things I'd like us to dig into before we get too far. Just a couple of observations about the character of God that you already know. You don't even need to write these down. You already have these committed to memory. They will not come as a surprise to you. The first is this. God sees us and meets us in our time of need. Now, it's clear from this passage that the nation of Judah is in a panic. Israel has joined forces with Syria, and they're coming up against Judah. Verse 2 of our passage tells us that the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The threat was real. They were afraid. But, there's always that but, God had a plan. He was going to deliver them from this threat and wanted his people to trust him for salvation. Sound familiar? Kind of how God has done things all through scripture. 
He wants us to trust him for salvation. So God sends Isaiah with a message for Ahaz. It's a message of peace and a call to faith. In the midst of despair, he says to him, be careful, be quiet, and do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of those two smoldering stumps of firebrands. It's a great picture. And he goes on to say to Ahaz, this thing that you're worried about, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. It's not going to happen. Israel and Syria are not going to conquer you. In fact, these two nations, these smoldering sticks, as they're called, within 65 years, this passage tells us, they'll be gone, finished. Like, not just a threat. They will no longer be nations. Wouldn't that be nice? Not the wiping out nations part, but like, you're struggling and God comes to you and says, hey, don't worry. Here's what I'm going to do to fix your problem. And then in great detail, he spells out how it's all going to work. That would be, that'd be pretty great. Because we all fear, don't we? Like we all, we all despair, all of us. Now you don't, I'm not going to pressure you. You don't have to put up your hand. But who in here is currently in or has recently experienced a time of despair or fear, worry? Any of you in here? Okay, yep. Most of you are liars, so that's fine. Because here's the truth. We have all been there, all of us. And in that moment, God sees you. He does. He knows. He knows you're hurting and afraid, but he also has the perspective of knowing what he is going to do. He has a plan, and that plan is to draw you closer to him and make his greatness known. Through Isaiah, God tells Ahaz not to be afraid. Don't do anything rash. Trust me. And then, there's even a cool side note here. Through Isaiah's son, there's even a message. You remember him? Read about him just a second ago. God told Isaiah to bring his son along. And it wasn't because he was babysitting him or needed to get his steps in. God told him to bring his son along. His son is named Shir Jashub. And that name means a remnant will return. So even in the face of this threat to Ahaz, to Judah, God is in control and he is sending a promise saying, you you and your nation, your nation will not be wiped out. It kind of doesn't seem fair that Ahaz gets this. Like, don't you wish that these kind of specifics we're coming from God when you're struggling? Like, would you be okay with a prophet coming to you telling you exactly what's going to happen? Like, you're going to get this job. Or, yes, you are going to marry this person. Like, here's how all this is going to play out. But we, we rarely get that luxury. Most times we're given what seem like generic promises of victory or deliverance or peace. And not generic in the bad sense, but just not specific. In Philippians 4, we read, Do not be anxious about anything, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace will guard you. That's good news. But what about the specifics? What's going to happen? What if it doesn't turn out the way that I want it to or the way that I think I need it to? Like, don't be anxious about anything? Like, God, have you seen what I'm going through? Ahaz had a real, visible, tangible threat. 
Syria and Israel had come together to replace Ahaz with their own puppet king, the son of Tabeel. You, today, you might have a legitimate reason to be afraid. Because they're out there. Scary diagnosis, right? A crumbling relationship. Financial insecurity. Your kids are going off the rails. They're very real fears. And in those moments, when we read God's word, when we pray through the godly counsel of others, we are given the message that we are to trust God because he actually knows what he's doing. He knows the future. In our passage, God lays out what's going to happen to Israel and Syria, and for the record, what he said was going to happen actually happened. But we don't know the future. And we rarely get that kind of specific detail. What we do have, though, are promises from God's word like these. And you, you know these verses. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. These are promises that we have. Now, those passages are not saying, and hear this out, they are not saying my immediate situation is going to be rectified in the way that I think it should. This is not to say that every trial we face is just going to disappear, that God will just make all the bad things go away. I mean, that might happen. God does that. We're told to pray to that end. But what's the reality that we see in the world? We see suffering. Suffering can be deep and wide and long. But for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we know that ultimately, maybe not right now, maybe not in the way we think, but ultimately God's plan for us is a future and a hope. And that all things will work together for good. But hear me out, maybe not here on earth. But certainly in eternity with him. Do you believe that? Like, I hope you do. I hope I do. And that's kind of where the rub comes, isn't it? Like Ray Orland said this, inevitably God brings us into crisis. Um, sorry. Sooner or later, this question presses itself upon us. If I put my trust in God, will he save me? Will he be true to his promises in the gospel when it really counts for me? Do I trust him? And through Isaiah, God gives a message of hope and peace for Ahaz. And at the end of it, he says, if you are not firm in faith, if you don't believe me, if you don't trust me, you will not be firm at all. We have to believe. Like actually believe, believe. And there are consequences when we don't. Faith, I mean, we have to have faith. That's what God calls us to. As much as we're given in Scripture instructions to not fear, like Ahaz was, we're given as many or more to have faith and believe and trust God to be who he says he is. That's our second point. He wants us to have faith. <clears throat> That's really what's at the heart of his promise to Ahaz. God knows what he's going to do. He's going to do it regardless, and I like that part. He's going to do it <clears throat> whether or not Ahaz trusts him. But he wants Ahaz, and he wants his people to believe that he's going to do what he says. He's always been after our faith. 
God's always been after our hearts, our belief in him. He even goes so far as to tell us in the book of Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. When we bring our worries to him through prayer and petition with thanksgiving in our hearts, do we actually believe that he's going to come through on his promises? If we trust him, as we read in Philippians, the peace of God that goes beyond all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Do you have that peace? Have you taken your worries and your fears to him? Because trust in him and faith in him brings peace. A couple of weeks ago, we were reminded, Sam was talking us through a passage where we're reminded that we don't have things from God. Why? Because we don't ask. Do we have that peace? Are we asking for it or are we bound in despair, unable to do anything? Or maybe conversely, we're we're running around like maniacs trying to fix everything on our own and do it all ourselves. We often work so hard to fix our own troubles. Like we don't want to bother God with what we've got going on. He doesn't have time for this, even though he asks us to. Another part of the backstory to our passage today is that Ahaz, because of his fear of Israel and Syria, he had reached out to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. This is in 2 Kings chapter 16. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant, I'm your servant, and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house, and he sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kerr, and he killed Rezin. So I think our passage today must come somewhere between verses 8 and 9 of 2 Kings 16 there. Ahaz had reached out to the king of Assyria, but they hadn't shown up yet. But it is going to happen. The threat will be neutralized by Assyria, but who's actually behind it? God is. It's God's promise. It was God's promise, but who was Ahaz putting his faith in? Assyria. And we find out toward the end of this passage that this is going to come back to bite him, but we'll get there. God wants our faith to be in him, not in people, not in money, not in position, not in doctors, not in our own ability to take care of things. He wants our faith in him. Sorry. Psalm 20 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Ahaz literally trusted in chariots. In the face of a real threat, a real actual scary thing. Remember, the whole nation shook as trees before the wind. It was a real threat. He didn't go to God. He went to Assyria. God wants Ahaz's faith, but he doesn't get it. So he offers him a sign. Look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now again, this just doesn't seem fair. How many times have you asked God for a sign? Like, show me you're going to do something. It's not without precedent. God has given signs in the past. But here, 
He says to Ahaz, I want you to believe that what, or that I'm going to do what I've said I'm going to do. What'll it take? Ask me anything. You name it. The craziest thing you can think of, ask me and I'll do it. Deep as Sheol, high as heaven. How many of you would have jumped at that opportunity? None of you, apparently. None of you. Fast asleep. I would. And I'm very creative. So I could come up with some amazing signs. Most of them would be to do with flying, something along those lines. But that's not what happens here. Ahaz doesn't ask for a sign. Actually, not only does he not ask, he flat out rejects God's offer. And it's not even subtle. Verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz has been offered the opportunity of a lifetime, and he says, no thanks. And he even tries to make it sound like it's a righteous decision by adding in a quote from Deuteronomy 6, where he says, I will not put the Lord to the test, which sounds spiritual, right? Pious and godly. I mean, Moses did tell the people, it's right there, Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test as you tested him at Massa. Except God just told him to test him. That's the difference. And this isn't completely out of character for God either. In Malachi chapter 3, God says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. And if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, God is saying, I want you to test me so that I can show you how faithful I am. Ahaz, though, has already made up his mind. He's going to trust in the chariots of Assyria. And he's just trying to save face now with Isaiah in this conversation. But Isaiah is not having it. Verse 13. Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you also weary my God? I love some good old prophetic sarcasm. I mean, Ahaz obviously isn't trying to weary God, but given all that God had said and done, Ahaz's unbelief was wearisome. And God had had enough. And in case you missed it, and this is, this is a, an interesting piece, notice the change that's used in, in the way that Isaiah is addressing Ahaz. In verse 11, he tells Ahaz to ask a sign from the Lord your God. And here, he says, you would weary my God, not your God. It's a sad moment when God's message of peace and hope, is how it started, turns to a message of judgment and condemnation. And here's how the rest of that message plays out. Verse 14, therefore, we're back around to the therefore. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And because of their unbelief and because of their lack of faith, even though God was going to take care of Syria and Israel, And even though that threat will ultimately amount to nothing because of Ahaz's unbelief, Judah was going to be judged and judged severely. 
Now, a bit more than 200 years prior to this passage, God had told King David that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God's plan was not to destroy Judah. Remember the presence of Isaiah's son, Shir Jashub, or Jashub is a reminder that Judah won't be completely wiped out. A remnant will return, but things are not going to be pretty. The father is going to send Emmanuel to rescue his people, but not yet. Ahaz won't get to see Messiah. Dale Ralph Davis said, Emmanuel has no relevance to Ahaz. Ahaz has chosen the king of Assyria instead, but Emmanuel will come in spite of Ahaz and his unbelief, but he won't come for Ahaz. Emmanuel is coming, but Assyria is coming first. Darkness is coming before the light. We're told that when this Emmanuel comes, verse 15 of our passage, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, there's some debate among scholars as to whether or not this is actually a good thing, right? The curds and honey part. In Exodus, Israel is promised a promised land where it is flowing with milk and honey. So has the boy arrived at a time of opulence and abundance? Well, in context, and especially if you read on through the rest of this chapter, it would seem like things are going to be not good, that it won't be a place of abundance. It's not so much that the land will be flowing with milk and honey, but that curds and honey will be all that there is left to eat, that thorns and briars will take over vineyards. And this desolation brought on by Ahaz's unbelief will come at the hands of the very thing that Ahaz had put his trust in. That's that ironic kicker of this passage. Verses 16 and 17 say, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. By the time Emmanuel shows up on the scene, God will have sent someone to conquer Judah. Who? The king of Assyria. The one who Ahaz put his trust in. The one he actually paid to come and save him. That was who was going to come lay waste to the land. Now, thankfully, our lack of faith, which, if we're honest, is pretty deep sometimes, our lack of faith doesn't result in military invasions or massacres, but it does have consequences. When we put our faith in things rather than in Jesus, we set ourselves up for so much trouble. Like there may be some short-term benefits to doing things our own way, right? You might put a Band-Aid on your loneliness with a relationship, a relationship with a broken person who, just like you, is imperfect and will ultimately let you down. You might put your faith in a medical system hoping that a vaccine or surgery or treatment is going to somehow help you cheat death which is impossible. And you know that, right? You do know that? Because we don't treat it that way. It doesn't matter how many surgeries you have, there will come a day when they will no longer help you. So why is it that we're so hesitant to trust the one who can actually do something better? It's a bit of a rhetorical question. We can go all the way back to the beginning when Eve told Satan that God said, if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. And Satan said to her, did he really say that? Can you trust him? I mean, the answer is yes, we can. We know this. 
but we so often choose not to. And even in our rebellion and in our lack of faith, even when we say, no thanks, God, I don't even want a sign, I've got this covered, God in his grace gives us one anyway. Head back to verse 14 with me. Therefore, there's that therefore, we know why. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Even though Ahaz, even though we, there's no, there's no sense in making ourselves out to be better than Ahaz. Even though he, even though we want to trust in something or someone other than God, God himself inserted himself into the situation. He came to us, born of a virgin, to save a people he desperately loved. Which is our last observation, that he himself will be the one to save. We often read this passage around Christmas time. It's Matthew chapter 1. And I believe I have a spelling mistake in this, uh, in this slide. Tim fixed it. Thank you, Tim. I didn't need to mention that. Great. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And in case you didn't know, which means God with us. God told Ahaz to ask for a sign, anything, anything at all, and he passes. Ahaz already had his faith fixed firmly in Assyria. I've got it covered. But God, in his grace, promises a sign anyway. What's the sign that's promised? The virgin will conceive and bear a son. That's significant, right? That's a miracle. Now, we didn't, and we won't be getting into all the science of that today. Uh, if you don't know why this would be a big deal, you can ask your parents on the way home. Um, but the fact that Mary had conceived and would bear a son in her virginity is a sign. It's a miracle. But what should be more significant to us today is who that child is. It's Jesus. It's God himself, Emmanuel. We could jump back into our study of John here and be reminded that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word dwelt among us. God incarnate, God in the flesh. Jesus, born in Bethlehem to Mary. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's the sign. When God told Ahaz that he would send a sign, he gave that sign a name, Emmanuel. In that moment, he was saying to Ahaz, I'll give you a sign and it's going to be the very thing that you think you can do without. You don't want me? Too bad. Here I am. Ahaz wanted an earthly king to rescue him. Israel, at the time of the coming of Jesus, Israel wanted a military rescuer 
God promised to send the King of Kings to do it properly. He sees us, whether we have faith in him or not. He wants to rescue us from our struggles, from our sin, from our sorrow, and from our darkness. And I wonder, maybe you've forgotten that that's actually true. And I don't mean you. I do mean you, but I mean me. I mean us. You're seen and heard. You are never invisible to our Heavenly Father. Never. He actually sees you. He hears you. You are not abandoned. You're not being ignored. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, there's that word again. What's it there for? Because of the fact that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses and has been tempted in every way as we are. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in when? Time of need. Maybe you feel like he doesn't see or hear you. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you've been calling out to him and you feel like you've heard nothing back. I think we've all been there at one time or another. Here's the thing, though. He's there. And he's sovereign. And he's faithful. He's involved in every step of the way. Sometimes his way of letting us know that he is there is subtle. It could be like a meal from somebody at the church. An encouraging text from a friend. A piece of scripture that comes to mind. A bumper sticker in the right place at the right time. I mean, the very fact that you are here this morning hearing this sermon At the risk of being too bold this morning, let me be God's messenger to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, he said, I will never, oh, I will never leave you or forsake you. Those are his words. They're not mine. He is faithful and he keeps his promise. And that's God's word to us. Have faith in the one who began a good work in you and will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. He has not abandoned us. He can't. It goes against his word, who he is. And this isn't to get all prosperity gospel on you. Remember, this is not a formula. This is not a way to just pray and everything gets better. It comes from the hard work. The peace that we're looking for comes through the hard work of trusting God, resting on his promises. It's not simple. Sometimes there are periods of really, really, really hard things, painful things, but you haven't been abandoned. We're told to stand firm in faith. We won't be firm at all. Stay the course. Keep trusting. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the world is hard for you too, right? The same things that plague Christians plague those who aren't. So, What about you? Well, God sees you too. Even though you might not see him. Even though like Ahaz, you're not seeking God's help. Last week, we baptized Judy. I don't even know if she's here this morning, but if you were able to hear her story, it was such a great testimony to God's goodness. And one of my favorite bits of her story was when she shared that God had clearly put her on a path using people and events around her to draw her to himself. That's what God was doing. And to quote her, he did all that even though I didn't know it at the time. 
He wants you to know that he is the answer. The things of this world will never fix what is broken because the things of this world are broken. People are broken. Substances are subject to the law of diminishing returns. Systems, institutions, because of sin, everything is broken. No thing can save us, but someone can. And there's only one, and it's Jesus. He sees us and meets us in our time of need and offers hope, peace, love, joy. That's what we celebrate during Advent. Jesus coming to us, and he just keeps showing up. He gives us hope for today in the midst of really hard things of life and hope for tomorrow, the promise of eternal life, free from sickness, pain, loneliness, heartache, shame. We don't need to look elsewhere for that. Even if we did, we wouldn't find it. If you're here today and you're struggling, which you've already said you are, three of you said you were, or if you're here today and God's been trying to get to your attention, and I think if you're here this morning, God's trying to get your attention. Don't leave here without talking to someone. I say this all the time. No one comes and talks to me. During communion in a bit, we'll have some people up front to pray with you. I think Travis was over here. Maybe some of our elders or somebody can be, just be available. Um, if, if you're struggling or if you need to talk to someone about figuring this stuff out, come and talk to someone. These people who are praying with you up front, they are scheduled for the whole morning. They're not going anywhere. There's no rush. Um, if they're busy, come talk to me. Talk to Lee, somebody from our staff, somebody from the band. Uh, if you don't know who any of those people are, talk to somebody who looks like they might know and say, I need to talk to someone, and they will point you in the right direction. Let this be the time today that God asks you to trust him, and you say, okay, I will. Let's pray. You desire our hearts, God. You desire our faith. You ask us to trust you. And so many of us in this room say we trust you. And when it actually comes down to it, the way that we act, the way that we live out your commands, the way that we fear, the way that we strive, we probably don't. So help us to trust you. We pray that your spirit would do a work in us and that it would be a long-lasting work that we would continue to see how good you are. We trust you all the more. We pray in your name.